Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters, a.k.a. The Ant Hill. Uh, I'm really excited today because I'm doing one of my favorite kinds of shows today, and that's a show about gardening, a little bit different than anything we've done before. I'm going to talk about four different types of gardens that you can build. All of them require no real digging. Uh, they're quick and easy to install. They'll get you into food production fast. Uh, if you use some, some protection, either a little bit of shade protection or a little bit of winterized protection, you can get into production pretty quickly just about any time of the year, just about anywhere in the world with these other than maybe, I don't know, the upper, the upper peninsulas of, uh, Alaska or Antarctica or something like that. I think you can pretty much make this work. Uh, just about any time of the year, maybe a few times of the year where it's a little bit too cold or a little bit too hot to get it going, uh, unless you provide some protection, but it'll get you off the ground. These techniques are really going to be about when you're in a transitional period or you're trying to transition the land, either one. And that's how I'm going to present them today. I think it's going to be fun, and I think that no matter who you are, if you want to grow some of your own food, one of them's going to be right for you. That's why I'm bringing, instead of doing a show on each one, I'm bringing all four of them together, kind of go like, Really smack them hard, go through them quick, and make sure we get a lot of information to you today uh, and get you enough so you can get off the ground with one of them if you want to. It's the middle of summer. It's hot as blazes. No one wants to dig the hard ground right now. Um, even if you do, if you got rough ground, it's hard to, to, to uh, get it improved fast enough to get it producing this time of year. There's no rain uh, unless you live somewhere where there's too much rain. So we're going to solve those problems today. And what it's going to do is give you the ability to still get some food production this year and then take your resources and spend them on actually improving the land long term or actually use the technique itself to create a permanent uh, structure for you or to use the technique to transition the land. So this is going to be awesome. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsors to do our housekeeping. Sponsor of the day number one today, Western Botanicals. Look, if I need an herb and I can't grow it or pick it locally and I need it now, I go to Western Botanicals because I know if I need whole herb, they're going to have anything that's legal to buy in the United States of America that's an herb. I'm going to find it there. It's going to be either organically grown or it's going to be wild crafted. And I know I'm going to get quality, I'm going to get quick shipping, and I'm going to be well taken care of. Likewise, if I need something that's kind of put together, an herbal preparation, I'm going to Western Botanicals because I'll know I'll find whatever I need there. If I have a question because I don't know what I need, I pick the phone up and I call them and they help me. That's the kind of company they are. They're run by Dr. Kyle Christensen, who was on during the interview blitz that I did while I was away on vacation. If you heard that show, you know he's an awesome guy with a tremendous amount of knowledge and a sincere desire to help. And he's willing to say once in a while, this is not something you need herbs for. You need to go see a doctor. That's why I trust him. And that's why you should trust them too. And remember, if you're part of the Member Support Brigade, they have a preferred membership, 25% off everything Western Botanical sells. You get it for free. That costs most people 50 bucks. But if you're a Member Support Brigade member, you get it for free. That's a good reason to consider the MSB. Next up today, Sawtooth Tactical. Veteran-owned, American-owned, and great service and really cool stuff. What more could you ask for? That's what you find at Sawtooth Tactical. Uh, recently... 
Jeff over there got in touch with John Willis. He's gotten rid of the Maxpedition stuff, and he's brought in SOE Tactical Gear. I find that to be kind of an upgrade. You talk about the best-built stuff you can get your hands on when it comes to tactical gear. It's John Willis' stuff, man. I'll tell you, I saw a video where they hooked up two giant trucks to one of his belts and tried to pull it apart, and the truck spun their tires. And, I mean, these were big-ass trucks. Even John, who built the stuff, looked at it and went, wow, I didn't know that our own gear was that tough. That's how great SOE gear is. That's why SawTech has them. They also have uh, things like Magpul Magazines. Anything you're looking for to live that tactical cool lifestyle, you'll find at Sawtooth Tactical. Remember, the best way to make sure that you're dealing with a Survival Podcast official sponsor, go to the survivalpodcast.com, and when you do, uh, click on their banners in the right-hand margin. That'll get you there. Uh, one of our other sponsors today, Shelf Reliance. I told you I'd be bringing you a new contest. This is a big one. Uh, you can now win a Harvest 72 uh, food rotation storage system with the holiday and Lance, uh, kind of launching this on a Tuesday. We're going to run this from Tuesday this week to not Tuesday next week, but Tuesday the following week. And uh, there'll be a link today. There's some stuff you got to do. You got to go, you know, like their Facebook page, leave a comment on their blog, that type of thing. But full details are available at Shelf Reliance blog. I'll link to that today. Harvest 72 food rotation system is valued at $375. And what Mike over there said is if it's too big for you, you can order a smaller system. If you want it configured for all number 10 cans, whatever you want, basically, from a Harvest 72 down, they'll do that for you so that it'll fit. So if you're thinking, I'll have room for a 72-inch rack, you can get one of the smaller systems. Winner's choice. One winner in this one. That's a $375 value. We just gave away an AR7 earlier this month. Right after this contest with Shelf Reliance, Ready Made is stepping back up with that AR15 upper. I'm bringing you big stuff from here on out. I've got a program in place now. I figured out how to run it, and we're going to make sure that you guys have an opportunity to run really great stuff just about every two weeks. This is just the latest example. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to member. You get awesome discounts, you get exclusive video content, and hey, you're supporting the show at, I always say 20 cents an episode, but you want to know the truth, 19.3 cents an episode. So if you think eight was worth two dimes when I got off the air today, and you haven't joined yet, consider joining. Last, last but not least, do hook up with me on Facebook and Twitter. We're having a blast there. I'd love to have you in that community with us, too. Make sure you check out our forum as well. One more there. Let's get into today's show. Um, just kind of prefacing, pre prefacing, prefacing today's show. Um, I am a big believer, and I say this because I had a kind of temper tantrum uh, rant from some idiot on the Facebook fan page when I posted pictures of uh, a little garden uh, project I'm doing right now with, with bag gardening, which is going to be the first one we talk about today. And he was all mad because the product came from Miracle Grow. Well, I got like these. 60-pound bags of topsoil on clearance uh, for, God, I think it was $4 a bag or something like that. It was ridiculously cheap, and I thought, well, you know what, I can do this. But he was, you know, you need chickens and you need this. It's like this guy doesn't know anything about my work because I'm all about permaculture, and I'm all about transforming the land. But it's also almost July. I finally got here to my, my homestead. Uh, we went on vacation. I had to work twice as hard than we weren't here. I've had so much to deal with that we just haven't gotten much done this year. So my intention was to put a few things in place, like some container gardening, some bag gardening, so we get some production this year, and that gives me time to work on things. So I want you to understand that everything I'm talking about today is really designed to help you get certain things up and running quickly and then use these techniques to either transform the land right where you're using them or buy yourself time 
to, to improve your property and get it up into full-scale production, so to say. So that's what I'm looking at here. So if anybody looks at, like I have a picture today of a little bag gardening project I did on my blog and sees, well, there's miracle grow bags of soil there. Sure there are. Um, does that mean that I'm walking away from organics? Absolutely not. In fact, that soil will be just as organic as every, anything else. Um, when the uh, fertilizer that they, they probably have included in there is used up in about six months. It's manure, it's, it's uh, vermiculite, it's uh, sphagnum peat moss. If you've ever opened a bag of that stuff and smelled it, you know there's a healthy dorsa cow or horse manure in there. So this is really about, again, a transitional thing. The next thing is, when I do gardening shows, sometimes I hear from people that are all about the beans, bullets, and band-aids, right? Like, they, they just don't get where, uh, you know, a, a, a compost shovel and turning soil comes into the survival mentality. Uh, to those people, I have a question for you. Where do you think the beans come from? Um, there's a few things I've said before. I think they need to be reinforced today before we go on. Number one, you can only store so much food. So I don't care if you're buying your beans. You can only buy so many, you can only store so many. Number two, you may fight a real battle a handful of times in your life, um, but you're going to eat daily. And, and there's, there's no, uh, there's no workaround for that. Uh, there's no way out of that. There's no way you can change my mind about that. You absolutely will have to feed yourself every day. And if you've been in more than two or three really serious fights in your life, and you MMA guys, boxers, Taekwondo people, whatever, sparring and all that stuff, that's not a real-life death situation. That's an agreed-upon sport. I mean a real fight where, like, if you lost, you're going to end up in a hospital. Maybe you did. You're fighting for your life. You're really in a real fight more than a handful of times in your life. You need to do some self-examination because you're looking for trouble. All right, But you're going to eat every day, no matter what. There's people that walk through their whole life. They're not cowards. They're not afraid of a fight. But if you don't need to fight, you don't do it. And they walk through their life from the age of zero to the age of 95 or, or older, and they step in the grave, and they've never been in a fight. But they eat three times a day. The next one is our current food supply is threatened. There's a million ways that's true. I'm going to leave it at that today. But if you don't understand that, please just do. Just accept it. There, there, there's weather threats, there's, there's all types of threats. There's um, the GMO threat, we don't know when something there's going to go wrong. There's a lot of reasons to understand that our food supply is threatened. Peak water, peak phosphorus, there's so much there. Just accept that on some level our food supply is threatened. Number four, our food supply is now heavily affected by inflation. So much so that the core, uh, was it CPI they call it now instead of core inflation and they keep changing the way they calculate inflation to make it look like it's not as bad that they've pushed most of the food out. And they've done stupid things like, well, we're just going to call it meat instead of, you know, comparing steak. And, you know, one time we're going to use steak and next time we're going to use hamburger meat. See, inflation's not that bad. Well, I don't know about you, but I value steak a little bit more than I do hamburger meat. Uh, so we are going to see not just a shortage of food, but an increase in the price of food. And number five, and this is the most important thing, if you're going to be a survivalist, whether it's a modern survivalist like I talk about, or you believe in the big apocalypse and you're going to have to make do with nothing, you have to be self-sufficient. And if you're going to be self-sufficient, you must feed yourself. There's no way around that one. That's why I think this is all important. I just wanted to preface that. And... Again, I want to say that as we go into these different methods, they're designed to get you through harsh environments or transitional periods. This is also why they're survival techniques. If you ever have to get to a point where you need to bug out for real, like the big thing happens, and you get to that, that bug out location and you haven't gotten everything going yet, sure, you want to work to make that thing a long-term producer for you 
because uh, you don't know how long this type of scenario could last. But you also got to feed yourself now. Now that means having food in storage, food in stockpile, but it also means and as you use what you've stored and you're now transitioning into the long term, you need a, a bridge to get you there. These techniques can put food on the table in 90 days or less. So that is another reason to, to know how to do them, even if you're not doing them right now yourself. So let's get into them. The first one is bag gardening. And when I first looked at this, I thought, well, I don't need it. That was my first thought. I don't need this. Uh, of course, I already had like eight gorgeous beds that I'd been working on for five years at the time. The beds that I left behind in Texas that I could stick my hand into almost up to my elbow before I met resistance. That beautiful black earth. And now I'm sitting here in Arkansas on this quartz uh, and, 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 and sand and rock and gravel. And some places, I mean, an inch of soil on top of absolute bedrock. And when I say bedrock, I don't mean pieces of rock. I mean a slab of quartz. I mean that my neighbor's house, when they put my neighbor's house in, they had to bring dynamite in and blow a shelf out of the bedrock to put in the house. That's on a hell of a foundation. Um, but that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about on some pieces of my property, not all. So I sit there and I look at that, and it's, it's June, and it's 103 degrees in the shade this weekend while I was doing this project. 103 It ain't rained in three weeks, and I want to eat something this year. All of a sudden, bag gardening is starting to look like uh, it's something good. So I put some containers on the, on the back porch and uh, put out some, some pictures of those on Facebook, and I thought, let's do a bag garden. And what I did, and this is like to help you think about your own process where you might use this, is I found a piece of my property that was about as bad as it could get, but was relatively level. Um, so it was, and, and close to my well pump house where there's a hose bib so I can water it very, very easily and put a little coil hose there, one of them little ones that extend back and forth so it could be easily out of the way. And, um, started cutting down some pine trees. And I have some really useless pine trees. People will tell me, pine trees aren't useless, Jake. Man, the ones on my property are. When you got 200 of them occupying about 80 square feet, they're all about, you know, about as big around as, uh, as two broomsticks put together. And they're a species of pine tree that just doesn't really even provide good timber. They're pretty dead gone useless. You can make some pine needle tea out of them and maybe use the sap for some things. But when there's about 50 billion of them on the mountain, that little patch of them are pretty useless. So we cleared those out, left a few of them standing, built a trellis, threw some bags down in front of them. And what that will do for us is, since it's so easy to water, uh, the soil's completely prepared. Got the sulfur, again, next to nothing. I think it was $4.15 a bag on, 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 on clearance uh, at a Walmart here. And I took, like, all they had. Um, once that's in place, all we got to do is water it. We know the plants are going to do decent. We put stuff in there with high yield, like beans and squash, a couple tomato plants. Some, we actually did some watermelon, some cantaloupe, and we'll just see how it does. Uh, and, and part of this is also just to see what it can do for you. I took one of them, I planted them with temporary beans. Temporary beans traditionally grow in a desert. Uh, I'll probably water them one every, you know, once every two days instead of twice a day like everything else. The only reason I'm planted those is can I, can I get a seed yield for next year? So there's all kinds of things that are going on there that are for this transitional state. But with 14 bags of this stuff, I have the equivalent of a four foot by eight foot bed that all I had to do was lay the stuff down, cut the tops off it, poke some holes in the bottom of it, and it's there. And then by trellising, I'd say about 70% of it, now I increase my, my surface area because I can grow pole beans, I can grow squash up the trellis, and that means I get a higher yield than just the surface area on the ground. And that frees me up now 
to go and start focusing on the important things like laying out my hugel culture beds, bringing in my buddy Sean that's going to come in with his heavy equipment and, and terrace that area, flatten it out, dig me some depressions, put my wood down in there, bury, bury that wood with a hugel culture, which we'll get into in another technique in just a bit. But to get that going, to get my chicken house built so I can start bringing some chickens in, uh, to build some chicken tractors so I can move the chickens around and get them to do some work for me. There's so many things that that now frees me to do, and yet this fall we'll have some kind of a yield. And there'll be some other things that we're doing, some that we'll talk about today along the way. The other thing you need to understand is every time I do something like this, it's also for you. It's, does this work? Just because Mother Earth News put out an article about it, does it work? Uh, and I want to know if it works, and I want to know what you can expect if you do it. So I'll be reporting on that for you. But the beauty of it is, especially if you're going to do things like this too hot this time of year. It's just way too hot here. But if you were going to do this in early spring, late fall, something like that, for growing greens, you can't screw this up, right? I mean, if you're growing, like, lettuces and things like that, you throw a couple bags out and you do that, um, you're, you're going to get kind of a very, very quick yield. You've got great soil. Uh, it is inexpensive. Somebody asked me if this is cost-effective on the Facebook fan page. Let's take out the $4 a bag clearance sale. Um, let's look at this stuff usually sells for about 8 to $9 a bag. So if I put one bag down, plant a couple of zucchini squash plants in it, and I get 20 to 30 zucchinis off of that, uh, and they sell for maybe 50 cents a piece during that, you know, the time of year when they're so available, uh, and I get, you know, 10 to $15 for zucchini out of there, is it cost effective? Sure. Uh, if I throw a cantaloupe plant in there and it doesn't do that good and I get two cantaloupes off of it, is it cost effective? Maybe not so much, you know, if I, the beans, how, you know, beans are dirt cheap. How many pole beans can I grow out of a bag? I don't know yet. But if you bring in soil like that, and, and trust me, I think that you'd be better off using an organic uh, potting soil for this or an organic garden soil for this. They didn't have any, and this stuff was dirt cheap. Uh, but again, it's 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 Miracle Grow fertilizer. It will be used up by the plants, and then what's left is the organic component. Either way, you're left with a whole bunch of dirt. Now we can use that dirt in a lot of ways. We can throw that into our raised beds. Uh, we can put, throw that through our compost bin and enrich it with compost and use it as a stretcher and a filler for our compost. There's so many things we can do there. That dirt's not gone just because we've grown it for one season. It now can go into the land. And it also is going to save me a lot of grief. I'm not going to be doing a lot of weeding there because uh, there's no weed seeds in there. I'm not going to deal with cutworms. You know, I'm, I'm putting beans in the ground in a new piece of land that pretty much is just grass. That means the place is probably rocked with cutworms. Chickens haven't been through the place yet, so you know there's a ton of them there. And that means that my beans are going to come up, they're going to grow, and they're going to do all right. So there's a, there's a lot to be said for this technique. But I also want to kind of talk to you about how you can use it to create two things that a lot of people out there are doing a lot of work to create and to cut back on how much work you got to do. We've often talked about laying down cardboard, putting mulch over it, killing grass, and then coming back and planting it down the road. Or putting down cardboard, putting down some soil, planting in that soil, putting down mulch, and by the time the cardboard's eaten away, and it's, it's an effective technique, it works, but you got to bring the cardboard in, uh, you got to do all that extra work, and you got to wait to really get somewhere with it. Some of the things that you'll plant, you're going to have to cut through that cardboard, hope they make it into the subsoil, etc. Let me bounce this idea off you. What about something like a fence garden? A fence garden is typically where you take and you take your sunny fence, whichever fence gets the best solar exposure, and then you'll go there and you cut all the sod out or you do the cardboard mulch thing, whatever you have, 
But you create about a one-foot space off of that fence, all the way along that fence line. And then you either, you know, trellis stuff straight on the fence, you put a standoff trellis off the fence, whatever, and you trellis something up there. A lot of times people will use that as a place to grow pole beans. And it's a great environment for it. The fence is there anyway. You're using the existing structure. During the hottest time of the year, all those beans are out with all their leaves. It actually protects your fence, extends the life of your fence, especially if you do a standoff trellis so they're not laying on it, they're shading it, they're protecting the fence. The leaves need the sun. The fence doesn't want the sun. Leaves are, things that are alive need sun. Things that are dead don't want it. The sun will speed up the deterioration of the dead and cause the living to grow. Think about it. So, instead of all this work, we go out and we buy, you know, 20 or 30 bags of soil. Okay? I know there's an investment at first, but hear me out. You lay them all the way along your fence. You cut the tops off them. You plant your beans or whatever other trellising thing you want in there. You take mulch. Cover your bag garden. I've heard from a lot of people so far have done bag gardening. They dry out so fast. Mulch them. I'm going to mulch mine. I just haven't done it yet because I have little, little, little seeds in some of these. I'm trying to see if the and I'm, I'm really worried they won't in this heat germinate, but I'm trying to get them to germinate. I'm going to water the hell out of them, keep them as cool as possible, provide some shade. But once I get them to germinate, mulch them. Mulch the heck out of them. Now that plastic and that four to five inches of soil is going to kill dead any grass underneath there, and you're going to poke holes in these bags. The way you do a bag garden, you lay the bag on the ground, you cut the top off, leave about a two-inch border all the way around it to hold the soil in place. Take a big screwdriver, stab it down into the ground, make about 20 holes in the bottom of that bag for drainage and to let the water penetrate into the ground. The plants will also send their roots down those holes. They'll go down there and they'll mine the deeper minerals and pull them up. This will get all kinds of little creatures living underneath that bag. Earthworms and crooked crawlies and, and, and different uh, beneficial nematodes and, and your microorganisms. They're going to be down there turning that soil. All the grass is going to die. The roots are going to rot out. Those are carbon pathways, fast carbon pathways for roots next year to go down. At the end of the year, cut back all your greenery. Chop it up. Throw it in your compost pile. Take your bags, flip them over, pull the plastic away, throw it away, pile up all that dirt, mulch on top of it, maybe plant yourself a winter cover crop. Next year, what do you have? Perfectly prepared soil, and you got to yield this year. That is a transitional garden. That's taking a fast production system and using it to improve the location you've actually set it up on. Think about that. Now, take the same process. Measure your bags that you're going to buy. Figure out how many you need for 4x4 or 4x8 or 4x12 or whatever raised beds you want to do. Take a sheet of cardboard. Cut it, cut it out, piss it together, make that same dimension you want for your raised beds next year. Lay it on the ground. Take your bags. Because now you're putting them adjacent. You want to close off the seams. That's why you're doing the cardboard under there. Lay your bags on there. Okay? Just an exact rectangular shape, 4x8, 4x4, or however you want your beds to look, in, a, in an L shape, a U shape. I don't care what you want to do. So you put in your raised beds this year as bags of compost or bags of potting soil, bags of garden soil. Cut the tops off. Grow your, your raised bed. Mulch it. It won't even look like a bag garden if you cover it with mulch. Next year, do the same thing. Pull your mulch, mulch back. Dump your soil. Right. If you want to do raised beds with a wooden frame, Build your wooden frame on a level spot. Put the bags inside with the cardboard. Do the same thing. At the end of the year, pull plastic away. Turn the subsoil. The subsoil will all be loose and perfectly prepared for you. But instead of having to kill things or cut sod and break hard soil, 
You get it done for you, but unlike a conventional method where you have to wait four to six months for everything to die underneath, you have something to plan until now. Just a few thoughts. You wanted to do this on a big thing? You could take a cheap, uh, uh, heavy plastic, like pond liner type of plastic, but not something really that good, more of a painter's plastic, and you could just basically build your box for your raised bed, lay that in there, maybe two or three layers thick because it's usually clear, um, and use that as your bag to help suppress the weeds. And then you just have to, you know, pull the soil back from all sides and pull that out. I think it'll work easier with the individual bags, but if you wanted to do it big and fast and more cost-effective, you had access to good soil to drop in there, that would be another way you do it. I think that's overkill, but it's another option. I just want you to realize that the bag garden is not just so you can throw the bags out there and grow something and throw them away next year. You can use them for improvement. And you take the ideas I just gave you, look at your property and your problem and see how it might apply. The next one is really, really awesome. I did a show on saving money, the fourth in that series, where I was told uh, at the end of the show one of the things that came in was using um, recycled rain gutters to grow a vertical garden. The person did it in Alaska and just took old rain gutters and basically bolted them to the side of their house, on the sunny side of the house, filled them up with dirt, and started growing. And that way it got out of the rocky soil and what have you. And it's cool up there. And, you know, I said if I did that here, basically I'd cook my plants. But then I started thinking, man, we could do self-watering, two of them put together, what have you. Well, a, a listener named Larry Hall, and I'll put a link to his video on this today, ha had already been working with this. And what he was doing is using five-gallon buckets in other containers and creating a self-watering container garden that uses the rain gutters as the way to deliver the water to the plants. And it's so simple. He takes a rain gutter with both ends capped so the water will stay in there and a hose running off of like, like a rain barrel or another feed system. Now that goes into that, that rain gutter. You take a five-gallon bucket, you drill a two-and-seven-eighths-inch hole in it, and then you get a slotted pot basket. They're designed mainly for growing aquatic plants. And you put that in there, a three-inch one of those. They're very inexpensive. You can get a bucket for three bucks. I think you need those baskets for like a dollar or something. Every one of those makes a container. You build a wooden frame using two-by-fours or something like that on both sides of your rain uh, gutter so that there's something stable for the bucket to sit on. You take that, that, that three-inch basket, you stuck it in that hole you drilled in the bottom, and it holds itself in place because the hole's a little bit smaller than the top of the basket. It's got a rim on it. You fill it up with your, your you know, potting soil compost mixture, And then when you set it down onto those two pieces of two-by-four on both sides of the rain gutter, that basket sits down inside the rain gutter. And there's your wick to bring your, your stuff up. So it's one, instead of doing two buckets together to make a self-watering container, it's one bucket and one basket. More efficient, more effective, and less expensive. So then you just have rows of buckets going into these rain gutters. And then you have, you know, he's basically doing it manually and he's going to set it up to where it's kind of like a, uh, a chicken waterer uh, where the, the water basically just shuts itself off. But you could set a float valve inside there as well. And that's it. And as long as you have rain catch that rain barrel, unless you go through a really long dry period, you're not going to have to water anything. You don't have to touch it except to harvest it. You're not going to have any weeds, what have you. Um, and if you did have a dry period, as long as you have a hose bib somewhere and you can, you're going to provide water that way, you throw the hose in the rain barrel, turn it on until it's full, and shut it off. Uh, so it's extremely, extremely efficient. The reason I put it into this show is because, well, one, it just showed up to, uh, a couple days ago from Larry with pictures on Facebook and a YouTube video I thought was awesome and I wanted to tell you about it. But there's some big things about it. One, it's self-maintaining. 
And what that means so much to me is if it's self-maintaining and I have a big piece of property I'm trying to improve like I'm doing now, if I set that up, it's going to take care of itself while I spend my time doing other things. And I'm still going to eat this year, kind of like the bag garden, but more efficient. I don't have to water that thing, uh, even if it was like the desert and I got no rain during the entire growing period. Maybe I have to go there and fill the barrel up once a week. And he said a single stretch, standard stretch of gutter capped at both ends, one full of water holds about five gallons because uh, he measured it. Probably you just fill it up and uh, I guess you would take a five-gallon bucket and start dumping it in there until it was full and you got five gallons. Um, I'm not sure how you did it, but that's how I would do it. Uh, but that's that's the big thing, self-maintaining. It also uses easy-to-find materials. The the buckets, the little flower baskets, and the rain gutter and hoses and fittings and stuff like that. Any uh, any big box store, any Ace hardware store, any mom-and-pop hardware store is going to have everything you need, and it's affordable and inexpensive. It's an unlimited configuration. The one he's got is huge. It looks like a, a, a commercial nursery he's got set up, honestly, the way it's set up. Um, but I'm planning on doing this. I haven't decided whether I'm going to use buckets or some other sort of container yet. But I'm going to take and I'm going to build a two-tiered wood-skirted structure on the sunny side of my home. I've got uh, about a 30-foot stretch on the south-facing side. It's probably the south west-facing side of my home that gets great solar exposure, and I'm going to build a lower and a higher tier completely done in with, with wood. It'll look beautiful. It'll look like skirting for the home. Uh, and my, you know, It's a mobile home, so that the second tier will come right up to where the skirting stops. That'll help protect that underside of my home because uh, mobile home skirting is not the greatest stuff in the world and what have you. By making it two-tier, the lower plants won't shade out the higher plants. And all I have to do is run um, a, a stretch of uh, the uh, the rain gutter in the bottom of each section, and then it'll be all wooded, shaped in, so that the buckets or the other whatever container I decide to use will just sit down inside of there. And I was originally thinking about doing this is just a permanent structure where the dirt was one big mass of dirt, <clears throat> and then there was below that a big trough reservoir water. The reason this makes more sense is if I want to plant something uh, and, and I can just pull one of the containers out and, and work on it elsewhere. If I get an infestation of a particular pest that's decided to go after a particular plant and that infestation has gone down into that soil, I can remove that entire container uh, and deal with it elsewhere. I could also, let's say I wanted to... Um, Later in, later into the situation, one of the things I'm doing is putting in a, a greenhouse uh, that also is a greenhouse for the summer from aquaponic system. If I want to start seeds, I could take these buckets, these containers over to the greenhouse in the winter, start seeds directly in them. Uh, once they're up and to the point where I know they're safe outside, remove them from the greenhouse, take them back over, put them into the self-watering system. I could also have a self-watering system using the aquaponics water, um, the excess aquaponics water, maybe the drain off uh, from the bottom in the greenhouse for my seed starting. So I don't have to water those or take care of me either. But when I bring them outside and expose them to the environment, there's no transplant shock at all. Now, I wouldn't do that with a lot of them because they're a lot bigger than a soil cube, for instance. But certain things that were difficult to start Inside a greenhouse, I could do that with like certain root crops or things with long tap roots. 
So there's so much flexibility there, and it can either be a bunch of buckets and stuff, you know, the way that you'll see this video is done, or it can be a very beautiful-looking thing that you build as a permanent structure with this contained within it, because that's all this is going to be. This is going to be Larry's design in two tiers, one above the other, framed in with wood so it looks pretty. But the ins if you took the wood away, it'd look just like what he's done. And that's going to be so simple and so easy to do uh, that... I'm struggling with not doing it now. I've got this land sculpting to do. If I had not done the bag garden, the container garden, this is what I think I would do. And if I had figured this out a couple weeks ago, it probably would have been the way I went because I wouldn't have to worry about maintaining it all. Um, but now you know. So now you have the opportunity to do this. The beauty of this is it can be both a transitional uh, or, or adapt to harsh environment technique or it can be permanent. If you're going to do it permanently in a suburban environment, you'll probably want to look at the aesthetics a little bit and do something more like I'm talking about. You could literally just set these systems up and build what would look like raised beds around them. And you could reach in, and I mean, you could set them up in a 4x8 configuration if you wanted to. You could set them up in any configuration that you would want to do, uh, and they could be transitional or permanent. So I thought this was a great one to include today. The next one is the straw bale garden. And the straw bale garden is awesome because it's another one of these things that we can get up and running in a few weeks with no digging. And straw bale gardening is really, really simple. Uh, you basically set up your, your straw bales in the configuration you want them, and then you start watering them. And if you're a chemicals person, you dump ammonium nitrate on top of them, which I'm not, so you dump compost, uh, high nitrogen compost and, and potting soil on them and keep watering them until they begin to decompose. When you can, st if you stick your hand in there a day or two after you start this process, it'll be hot. Uh, it's significantly hotter than your hand and you'll notice the temperature increase. That's as the straw begins to decompose and take up some of the nitrogen. Uh, within a week or two, maybe three, you'll stick your hand in there and it might be warm but it's not hot anymore. It'll be maybe the same temperature or lower than your body temperature. When that happens, it's time to start planting. And then you just plant into your straw bales. Pull back, put your plants in there, put your seeds in there. If you do seeds, lay them on top of the soil that's already there and sprinkle a little soil over them keep them watered. They do tend to dry out, but I do find them actually to be water efficient. The reason they dry out is because you never get them wet enough. So if you coat the top of them with a soaker hose, your watering then is basically turn the water on uh, for a while, let it soak, turn the water off. And because of the complete control of the configuration and what have you, very, very simple, very efficient to do. This is another one of those things that can be permanent. This can be the way you garden. Uh, you can basically do this for, you know, use your bales for a year, uh, break the bales apart, use them for mulch next year, bring in new bales. But it's also an awesome way to do a transitional technique. Let me, let me bounce this off you. Again, you want to do four foot by eight foot beds. Standard configuration. Bring your straw bales in, lay them in a four by eight configuration straw bale garden this year. At the end of this year, uh, and you harvested everything, tear everything apart, Turn it all over. Turn some of the subsoil into the thing. Now you've got a raised bed. You can frame it in. or Folks, raised beds do not always have to have wood frames around them. I did that in suburbia because I wanted the people buying the house to like it, and they did, unfortunately. Um, when I do my raised beds here in Arkansas, there won't be rocks around the outside. There won't be wood around the outside. They'll just be a little mound right, with, with some hula culture stuff going on underneath them. That's it. That will be the raised beds that we'll be doing here. Um, so you can take the straw bales and just basically do the same thing. 
plant a, a winter cover crop, like a winter uh, Austrian winter pea or something like that, um, to get to do some soil building over your winter. Next spring, plant into your bed, keep improving it with compost. You've never dug an inch of soil in your life, but you got production in the first year. And you didn't have to dig and you didn't have to worry about the grass because the grass is not going to go up and through, you know, two and a half feet of straw. It's not going to happen. Your roots will go down because the roots have more time than the grass does. What you're doing when you're, when you're suppressing grass with, with, uh, anything that takes away the sun from it, you're trying to outlast the grass's capacity to live off its roots and off, off of what it's, what energy it has stored. The longer it has to go before it gets to the day, light of day, the more likely it is to die off. When you're sending roots down, the roots are continuing to go as deep as they can find based on your species of plant, how, how far it'll go down in the first place. Uh, and it has all day and then some because it's using the sun from its leaves to expand its root structure. So this is also a very, very efficient, uh, very fast, very productive system. Uh, and the configurations, again, are unlimited. And it leads you to either have uh, something that produces now while you work somewhere else. So these could be set up like I did with my bag garden in an area you're just not going to work on this year, or they could be set up in an area you want to transition. If you wanted to do a fence garden like the bag garden, take the straw bales, lay them along the fence, do everything there. The end of the year, pull the straw apart, let it to the ground, turn the, the, subso the, the subsoil into the, to the new topsoil and straw. Give it a mulch. Plant a winter cover crop. Next spring, it's perfect and ready to go. You see how these things are not just for uh, people that don't want to have to ever dig the soil, but they're also for people that don't want to dig the soil ever but want a conventional garden. They are transitional tools. The last one's a little bit different. It is a permanent structure. I think for most people anyway, it would be a permanent structure. Um, and it does require a little bit more work, but it's something we're going to do. And I think that that's why I want you guys to, to, to know about it. And I also think that it's a way to do things with materials that are just relatively available. And what I'm calling it is rock garden hugel culture. For all I know, it's been done a million times before. I've seen people build herb spirals with this, which is where I got the idea. We just decided we don't want herb spirals. We want multiple herb gardens, multiple flower gardens, uh, multiple productive gardens throughout our, our kind of our zone one of the front of our property. And we have all these rocks that we were going to do raised beds with, and we've kind of tossed them aside. And my wife had piled them up around this ugly telephone pole, and we just kind of pulled them all out of the way, and we're trying to figure out where we want them now. And this is how simple this is going to be. You take rocks, and you can do this with anything, but rocks just seem to make a lot of sense because I know if you live in a place like the desert full of sand and you don't have a lot of rocks except little ones, this might not apply to you. But for many of us throughout the United States, when it comes to big old heavy pieces of rock, You can get as much of it you want. It's free. All you do is go pick it up. So you build about a one-foot-high rock base in any shape or configuration you want it to be in. And maybe, maybe dig down a little bit or not. It's up to you. Into that rock base, fill it up just about level with old, rotted, decaying wood for your hugel culture. Build it up about another foot. So now I've got a two-foot-high structure. Fill it in with compost or potting soil or garden soil or whatever. Plant. That's the whole thing. So you never dig anything. And at the, at the best, you're maybe leveling a few spots or two to get a good level base. And you're building a beautiful rock garden structure. And you're going to be able to grow things there through the winter that you normally would because those rocks are going to create a thermal mass. 
You've got Hugo Culture going on. Hugo Culture, for those that haven't heard uh, the episodes where I've talked about it or the episodes with Paul Wheaton where he's talked about it, it's exactly what I said. It's building up or burying wood. Now, people are afraid of this because when wood begins to decompose, it takes up nitrogen. So most people look at that and say it's robbing nitrogen from the soil. It's a nitrogen sink. A sink is something that when stuff goes into it, it doesn't come out. So a heat sink would take heat away and never provide it back. But it's not that's not a thermal mass, right? That would be a, a heat sink. A thermal mass is a heat trap. A thermal mass takes in heat now and releases it slowly over time. That's what wood is in your garden. You put wood into a garden, you cover it with soil, and the wood takes in nitrogen now. It's a nitrogen trap, not a sink. And it's available for years and years and years to come. For the first year, almost nothing that it takes in is available. So what do you do to circumvent this? Well, when you're building your, your Hugelkultur rock garden, you fill that in with wood. And if you have equipment available, digging down a foot and making that mass of wood at least two feet deep is probably not a bad idea. And you could go, I mean, Sepp Holzer does this six foot high. But a lot of people don't want a big six foot mound in their front or backyard. I don't. Um, Paul Wheaton said what you want and what you need are two different things. I don't agree with that at all. Paul, I love, but there are certain places I disagree with him. And what you want can always be possible. You may give something up, like a smaller uh, bed, less of a life cycle to your hoogan culture, whatever, but you can make it work. Hey, I've seen it work. I know it works. So we can go down as deep as we want. We can go up as deep as we want. But the whole point of that wood in there is not just about nitrogen. It's about water. If you walk through the woods a good forest on like the driest day of the year. It hadn't rained for three or four weeks or maybe several months. And you find a rotting log buried in leaves and you pull that back, I guarantee you if you start digging into that wood, you're going to find moisture. That wood is a sponge and it will hold water better than just about anything nature has for us or no lake. <laughs> I mean, really. It's about That's about the only thing I know that holds water better than dry, rotted wood, right? It is, it, or, or rotted wood is a lake or maybe a river, except the river doesn't hold it. It moves it. So you've got that mass of, of spongy material there by the second year. The roots from your plants are going to grow down through the subsoil into there, and the soil is going to wick moisture up out of there. What this creates is a situation where you eliminate, not mitigate, but eliminate the need for irrigation in all but the dry... I mean, if you put this somewhere on the moon, okay, I'll admit, sooner or later it's going to dry out. But anywhere you get any precipitation at all, you should eliminate the need for irrigation. The other thing that we know about rock, rock actually creates moisture. If you take a big pile of rocks, you will have a heat mass that at night, when you reach the dew point and the dew settles, a lot of dew will settle on those rocks. Over time, that dew will transpire down through those rocks into the subsoil. This is another technique for eliminating or uh, mitigating irrigation to, uh, requirements. If you just put a mass of rocks somewhere, you'll notice that the stuff around them, uh, the native vegetation, will grow better up and through those rocks and around those rocks than just 10 feet away from that pile of rocks. Now we're putting that rock transpiration of moisture into the soil, into the hugel culture, in combination with the hugel culture. And then here's the beauty. All you're doing is piling up rocks, throwing wood inside it, throwing some dirt inside it, planting it. Now if you want to mitigate your nitrogen requirements, put a great big layer of composted manure on top before you fill up the stuff you're planting into and give the wood a big 
dose of nitrogen to suck up. Or take a big giant pile of blood and bone uh, fertilizer, high nitrogen stuff, blood meal, bone meal, and just coat about a quarter inch to an inch thick of that right on top of the wood. And as it decomposes, there's all that nitrogen there. And then use you know, compost and organic fertilizer to fertilize in your first year. Uh, and then you just keep adding compost like you always would. In any event, what you end up with are these nice little rock gardens uh, that are permanent structures that take care of themselves and don't need to be watered, and you can build small ones or large ones here and there with materials as they become available while you focus on improving your land elsewhere. So there you go. That's four badass techniques, best ones I could come up with to deal with harsh environments, to deal with transitional environments. And I think that if you look at them, like I said, I think anybody out there, you're going to be able to find one or two that apply to you. Now, for fun, I want to kind of tell you about what the two techniques I've done, which one I hadn't covered today, which is just basic, simple container gardening sitting on our back deck where we get great sun exposure. In the bag gardening, I did tell you about what that's doing for us, what that's buying us time to do. Down on the lower part of my front yard, I've got an area, a fairly large area, that's going to be my zone one vegetable and perennial bush shrub, like blueberry, raspberry type, um, ground nuts, things like that, are all going to be there. And what we're actually going to have uh, my buddy Sean do, <clears throat> Sean's going to come in with his heavy equipment, and he's been ready to do this for like a month, and I'm just not ready yet. I was originally going to create some level terraces, put in some framed raised beds, four by, and I was going to do about four by a twelve to four by sixteen, depending on what I could do. I've got a phone line there to deal with. I can't have them obviously digging on top of the phone line. There's a phone cable that runs up the mountain to feed the other five houses, and they've got this cable on, of course, on my side of the road. Uh, and I don't want to do anything in the easement anyway. Uh, not that there's a lot of people doing anything up where I'm at, but the county can do what they want. So I want to keep as much as I can out of the easement. I'm going to terrace that and do about two beds to each terrace. We're going to dig down about two feet, fill that up with uh, with wood, and uh, do the frames. So what I was going to do is I'm going to build all the frames, have everything marked out, collect all the wood, uh, get the soil that I'm going to use to fill everything with, have that piled off. I was going to have him come in, do the terracing, dig the holes, throw the wood in, put the frames on, and use the machinery to dump the dirt on top of them. I got to thinking about that, and I thought, well, I'm going to have to go out and buy some lumber. It's a few hundred dollars. Five, seven years, that wood's going to need to be replaced. At that point, I could just unscrew it and replace it, or I could just take it away and leave it be what it is. Or I could just leave it be what it is from the first place and eliminate the frames. I'm not in suburbia anymore. I'm not worried about selling this house to a suburbanite because a suburbanite is not going to buy it. I need to stop thinking like a suburbanite, even though I've been conditioned to do that after living in suburban homes for the past, you know, 20 years. So what we're going to do is almost the same thing, but a little bit simpler. We're going to come in, we're going to terrace. I'm going to have marked out where I want the holes dug. We're going to fill those in with wood. We're going to pile the wood an additional uh, foot above the surface of the holes. We're going to use a mixture of the soil. We'll have to sort rock out of there and use that for more rock gardens and other places up the hill from there. Um, and some of the some of the soil, because the native soil, even though it's silicus, uh, it's got quartz, it's got sand, it's got clay, it's got minerals. It's got a lot of stuff going on for it that mixed with compost. And people are saying, how much is it going to cost me to get compost? Well, we've got a composting facility here in Hot Springs where I can go get a certain amount for free. And I can get it for like $6 a cubic yard after that if they load it for me. If I want to back my truck up with a shovel to a certain area that they put some of it and just shovel it myself, I can have all I want for free. 
So my plan is, instead of having to get all of the stuff staged in advance, is to just have Sean come and do the work, lay down the wood, and I'll just keep making trips every other day with my truck, and about one truckload of my big old F-350 at a time will be enough to do about one bed at a time. And I'm going to put in, I think I figured out it's going to be about eight beds. They're going to be about four foot by 16 foot long with this technique. That'll let me grow an awful lot of stuff. It'll all be hugo-cultured. By this time next year, I'll have plants growing that never need to be watered. Uh, so that is one of the things that I'm buying time with these two little uh, bag and container gardens so that I get something this year. Up on the other side of the kind of the call, the state, the still the, the zone one, fairly large zone one for what I'm doing, just on the, uh, the uphill side of my well pump house where I have power available and water available, I have great solar exposure both in the summer and in the winter because it will orient and face south uh, and also orient and face east-west. So the sun will come up in the east, hit the front side of it, come over the top, and, 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 and then all the way till it goes down. And as the sun goes lower in the sky in the winter, I should get great solar exposure up there because it's raised up above the rest of the property. I'm going to have him take his, his dozer and flatten an area up there, and I'm going to put in a, a, a frame of about somewhere between 8 to 10 wide by maybe 16 feet to 20 feet deep. That's going to be a fairly nice-looking structure. I'm going to do it with typical uh, framing, the way you would frame a typical structure if you were going to build a shed or a small house. I'm doing that so it'll look good because it's going to be prominent on my property. If it was going to be, if I had a different type of property where I didn't have to put it out that prominently, I might do it with just hoops, uh, you know, a, a poly tunnel type configuration or whatever. But since everybody that lives on my road is going to have to drive by it every day, I'm going to make it look nice. I'm going to frame it to take windows and take builder grade windows and put several on both sides and several in the roof. That will eliminate the need to take any kind of complex configuration to allow for screening. In the summertime, when it's hot, you just open all the windows and leave them open. That keeps my pests out. In there is where I'm going to construct my aquaponic system and set aside an area that's going to be designed for starting plants that go into the, the typical garden. So that's what's going to happen there. Um, additionally, with that structure... I'm going to have him dig a trench for me when he creates the level area. And that's pretty much going to be, I don't want to, you know, he's kind of doing this as a favor, so I don't want to overextend his, his kindness. I'm going to have him dig me a trench at the back side of that structure and just leave it open. That is where I'm going to construct a rocket stove system and put piping in the ground and build a raised bed on the back side there. That raised bed will be a thermal mass. That thermal mass will allow me on the coldest nights of the year when I want to protect my equipment that's inside that uh, aquaponic system and the plants that are being started. Because we do get some, you know, we don't get a lot of cold days here in Arkansas, but we do get stuff down into the single digits on occasion on nights like that. Build one little fire, that thermal mass takes care of everything with all the water tanks and everything else that's in there acting as thermal mass. I should be able to have citrus in there if I want to. I may even set a little piece aside of it uh, to grow vanilla orchids prove that it can be done here in North America. So these are the things that I'm trying to do. So when you see something like me throwing some bags on the ground, that's not the plan. And that's what this maniac on Facebook that just wanted to be an asshat couldn't understand. You need to read. I mean, he was this guy's going nuts, folks. He's like, you need to read Joe Salton's book. I'm like, I read all Joe Salton's book, uh, books. I think he's a genius. I completely agreed with what this guy was saying, but he was in such a tizzy over arguing about the use of a product from Miracle-Gro, 
that he couldn't see the forest from the trees. This guy was biting his nose off the spider face. The way I put it in the comment thread was, this kind of guy, if you're in a firefight with him, he says, I'm out of ammo, and you, you, you pick up a magazine and throw it at him, go, here's a clip. And he says, it's not a clip, it's a magazine. He throws it back at you. <laughs> Instead of throwing it in his weapon and using it to defend himself. And you know what you do with that guy? You put your magazine in your own weapon, or you put it back in your pouch, and you go on, you leave his ass to get shot. That's what we ended up having to ban this guy. Um, I also want to say a little bit about things like Miracle Grow. Miracle Grow is owned by Scotts. Scotts was purchased by Monsanto. So Monsanto now technically owns Scotts, and Scotts owns Miracle Grow. If you're going to say that I'm not going to use any product uh, that's in any way part of the Monsanto conglomeration today, you pretty much have to buy from Mom Paws only, which I don't have a problem with. Uh, but it's real hard to find, you know, 14 60-pound bags of prepared earth from Ma and Pa distributors. It's it just difficult. Um, it also wouldn't let me prove out the system. So it was available. It was on sale. That's why I used it. If they had an organic product from Miracle Grow there, if they had had organic, and they're on clearance, getting rid of it because they, they think gardening's over because the spring's over. Um, if they had that available as a choice, I would have gotten it. If it would have been anywhere cost comparative. And again, all you're talking about here is, is a nitrate fertilizer that gets used up by the plants. I have never been someone that hates fertilizer. I want you to understand that. I try to do things as organically as possible. But there are places where if you want to grow corn, you're going to have to use a little bit of nitrogen fertilizer. Um, I don't think it's good for soil long term. I think it's terrible for soil long term. I think that it, it doesn't have to be, though. I've had uh, one guy that runs a hydroponic system and uses nitrogen fertilizer and says it doesn't interfere with legumes' ability to uh, to create nitrogen. And he sent me pictures of peas and beans from his uh, hydroponic system with huge nitrogen nodules on them, even though he's using a commercial fertilizer. My problem with commercial fertilizer has always been this. You give somebody something that can be used as a crutch and they'll turn it into a wheelchair. So farms today, these huge monoculture farms, instead of using nitrogen fertilizer, is something to help boost soil activity. They use it to replace soil activity. And this is why when we go to a big-scale farm today, generally if you pick the soil up and crumble it, it's just dust. It's like a, a, an empty sponge, and we have to keep saturating it. And as long as we do that, it'll never grow. So I don't hate fertilizer. I hate herbicide. Uh, I really hate pesticides. I'll even use pesticides. You want an example of that? Uh, I opened my well house, <laughs> and inside there is a huge set of cones, two different big giant ones with them big-ass red wasps on them. Uh, and I stick my hand into the hose bib to try to even get the hose on it, and they start coming after me. I'm sorry, big old can of Wasp and Hornet spray, saturated, dead, I, and I don't feel bad about it. There's a place for using certain things. But conversely, up the road from me, my neighbors, this, this elderly lady has a beautiful garden. She's built hers. Here's another technique for you. All they did is go to the junkyard and find the, uh, the, the bed liners, the plastic bed liners for pickup trucks, and stick them together end to end and put stakes around them. So each section is two bed liners butted up against each other on the open end, and then those, those, those uh, green fence stakes, like you would pound in the ground with a pounder to put up a, like a you know, like three or a six or a nine-line fence, those are being used to help hold them in place together. They filled that up with dirt, and she's growing in there. Well, she's growing just massive amounts of squash, and she was telling me when she lived in Florida and she didn't deal with squash bugs back then, two or three plants was more squash they could eat. Now she has to plant all this squash because of squash bugs. 
First, my heart sank because I thought she's dealing with squash vine borers. But when I looked at what she was doing last night, it's typical squash bugs, which I can deal with much easier than vine borers. And from my, and me looking at her plants, I can't see any evidence of vine borer activity. So it doesn't look like we have them up here yet. So, and I don't mean in Arkansas, I mean up on my mountain. So hopefully I'll be able to get some good squash production before I build a screened area for squash. Um, but she's using an insecticide. Because she said she kept coming out and finding these things everywhere. And she kept coming out and smashing the eggs everywhere. But what she doesn't get is that by killing off all of the pests and at the same time killing off all of the beneficials, and while she has a lovely garden and a lot of different varieties of plants, she doesn't have any herbs, any flowers, it's just peppers, beans, squash, things like that. No oregano, no basil, nothing to bring the beneficials in. So I want you to think about it this way. This is the problem with pesticides. I spray it and I kill everything. I've now created an environment that is somewhat sterile in life. Now, the one of the things that's going to bring in my beneficial insects, my predators, is good habitat. Oregano, basil, flowering herbs, different flowers and things like that, and places for them to nest. Now, since this whole place is mountaintop and surrounded by woods, there's some of that anyway, but nowhere near if I went in there and did companion planting. So I don't have any of that. The other thing that brings in predators is what? Prey. So I've, I've now eliminated the pests. So the predators that are in the area have no habitat, nothing to eat, so they don't come back. As soon as the pesticide residue wears off enough that it won't kill the next bug that lands on a leaf, everything that the pest needs is still there, the squash plant. So the squash bug comes back starts laying eggs again. Why? There's squash. It's a great environment. I'm living in a squash field, and I'm a squash bug. I'm happy. And there's no predators to get me. By the time the predators start to realize the prey's there, their numbers have come up highly. And one thing you have to understand about predators and prey, the prey will always outnumber the predator if the system is sustainable and the earth does things in a sustainable way. What I mean by that is there will never be as many lions on the Serengeti as there are wildebeests and zebra and gazelles. If there were, the lions could only live about a week. Because right, everybody needs about one a week to survive as an adult lion at minimum. And it's not even well fed at that point. So the pride might go out and kill two or three times a day right, to, to kill enough for a pride of five or six lions and some cubs. And at that, they may be just getting by. That's, and that's what they need, so that's what they take. They don't Lions don't make biltong. So that keeps things in balance. If we go out on the Serengeti and we wipe out six or seven prides of lions... It takes a lot longer for the system to come back into balance than if we go out there and kill a couple hundred wildebeests and zebras. Not that we should go out and wholesale slaughter wildebeests and zebras, but there's so many of them that the system rebalances quite quickly. When we take predators out, they're the lower in numbers, the system goes out of balance and stays out of balance for a longer period of time. This is one of the reasons I have so much problem with, with a pesticidal approach. And even an organic pesticide, if it kills beneficials, it's still a problem. DE is a perfect example. I don't like DE unless it's used in spot applications because if it gets on any creature with an exoskeleton, it's dead. It does work for squash vine borers. If you take a small DE duster and you dust especially the, the, the lower part of your vine and just the area straight around it, it works because as they try to crawl through there and they try to bore in, by the time they bore in, they're coated with that stuff and they're not going to live. They're not going to make it. It helps. It's still a problem because they can get in anywhere. But if you completely coat an area with DE, you kill everything that walks and touches it. And then it rains and it's gone anyway. 
And now you've created that imbalance again. Again, it's really important you guys understand with your organic techniques, it's not just about using things that are natural. It's about understanding the balance of the system as a whole. And, and I, I've never heard anybody say this before, and I really was just kind of kicking it around my head and thought about it last night. Some ecologist somewhere has had to, but I've never heard it in the gardening space. A fundamental reality, the predator-prey relationship always has to be more prey than predator, or the predator cannot survive. The predator must eat once a day minimum. The prey has all of the vegetation it wants. So since it lives as a herbivore, it is able to, to, to just rape and pillage off the land. The predator needs the prey. And it needs the prey to outnumber it for it to survive. Just something to think about. In other words, there's always got to be more deer than deer hunters if everybody's going to take a deer. If there isn't and everybody takes a deer, there's no more deer. It works the same way in the insect world. Please think about that as you're building out your guards. Hopefully, today was a good show. Hopefully, one of these four techniques I gave you is something you could use this year or going into the fall or something like that. I'd love to hear back from you on today's show. I think it was one of our best ones on gardening yet. If you have some other creative ideas, I'd like to do another show like this with maybe four more techniques. Give me your techniques. I'll look at them, evaluate them, see if I can get them in. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd You don't have to live the way they tell you to Up 